My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Dan. Some of the topics we talk about are the six-month campaign, villain org charts, rolling against yourself in Dark Heresy, painting miniatures, and leveling up your players. And then at the very end, we also talk about a game that he's working on called Crimson Kingdom. I'm also excited to announce the very first Dungeon Master's Toolkit design contest. And let's get into the details. The Discord got to vote on a few different pieces of what the contest would be. So for future contests, make sure you're a part of the Discord so that you can vote. From the voting, we decided to do a fantasy location set in an urban desert kind of area. You'll need three pieces for your submission. You'll need a description of the actual location itself. You'll also need an NPC that frequents the location, and then a set piece in the location that would draw your attention if you were to actually be there. So this could be an item, some architectural piece, maybe another person, or some feature. I will be taking submissions from July 1st until July 23rd, 2021 using a Google form, which you'll be able to find in the show notes or on the Discord server. The submission also needs to be less than 2,500 characters, which is about 500 words, and 500 words is about a full page of text. So just to limit how much I have to read through, that's what our maximum character count is going to be, and the submission form will actually tell you if you go over that limit. Now for the good part, the reward details. The winner will be announced on the podcast episode that releases on July 30th. So it's the last episode of the month. The winner will receive a $10 gift card to either Amazon or DriveThruRPG, their choice. And I will contact them via Discord. So make sure when you fill out the form that you have your Discord info correct so that I can actually get a hold of you. And by participating in the contest, you are allowing me to publish the submission. So my plan is to create a free PDF that contains all of the submissions of these various locations. And then that PDF can be used as a mini source guide for a massive sprawling desert city. The submissions should also be system agnostic, so it shouldn't matter if you're running a game in D&D or Pathfinder or Dungeon World or whatever. As long as it's a fantasy-style game, this should fit right in. And now let me set the scene for the massive, sprawling metropolis that we will be designing content for. Kald Jinan, the Immortal Garden. The city of Kaldjanan is a sprawling metropolis built around the only oasis for hundreds of miles. The city is built and surrounded by a large mountain range that encompasses the oasis. Due to its isolated nature, Kaldjanan operates as a city-state, employing its own government and military. Most goods are produced inside the city, from the ember mines to the Koric farms. One can find just about any commodity if they know which district to look in. Water. The most precious commodity in Kald Jinan is a tightly regulated resource. It flows from the Ember Palace to the nearby districts 
buildings, and homes through an intricate system of troughs and aqueducts. Rumors speak of underworld distillers who sell water on the black market, though any suspected operation is quickly trampled by the local military officers. Called Jinan is ruled by an elite council from the Ember Palace, a massive complex consisting of giant sandstone bricks and fertile gardens at the heart of the oasis. Various districts of the city are ruled by sub-councils. Be wary not to agitate the ruling elite, or you may find yourself on a one-way trip to the outskirts, where you'll be left for dead under the burning sun. Whatever your reason for visiting, Kaljunan will offer respite from the harsh and dangerous desert. Now, hopefully you've noticed, but I've tried the, to leave the prompt a little bit open so that people can take inspiration from it. For example, what are the ember mines? I have no idea. Is it is it a mineral? Is it some type of magic crystal? Not sure. How about the Koric Farms? Is it an animal? A plant? I couldn't tell you, but maybe one of our submissions will go into more detail about what those items are, and we will see and slowly develop collectively the lore of Kald Junan. I have Dan here with me today. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in role-playing games? Of course. So, um, I am a uh, college student right now, and I got my start in role-playing games probably middle school is when it was. We were uh, on one of those you know class trips where they drag everybody along for two or three days to some camp off wherever i think ours was redwoods or the marin headland it was one of those places and uh my dad was one of the uh you know uh parent chaperones and he brought along the uh old first edition module keep on the borderlands um and so we had you know three days out there with all the whole bunch of free time it ended up being that my friends and i uh we didn't get very far and we didn't do very well but that was definitely the start playing through the uh, introduction of that module. And uh, yeah, and then it kind of died for a little bit. And then in high school, my friends and I picked it up and we, uh, we didn't, we never had any free time during the uh, rest of the week. So we ended up playing just little half hour sessions every day at lunch. And yeah, and then it kind of just spiraled from there into a, uh, continued addiction to the hobby <laughs> and what game were you or what uh, system were you playing during your lunch hour so during the lunch hour it kind of upgraded in complexity at first it was really just us kind of you know with a couple pieces of paper and some random stats we were playing as ourselves and that was freshman year sophomore year one of us came out and we're like hey what if we actually tried dungeon dragons again and uh, that's where we're sophomore year and junior year. And then senior year, um, we are looking and we're like, all right, we played some Dungeons & Dragons. What if we kind of expanded into something else? And we tried um, the Star Wars Fantasy Flight RPG. And then we took a look at some other ones like the uh, old Warhammer RPGs. And But yeah, that's kind of, that. that's where we ended up uh, 
with high school at least. So what so, do you end up playing mostly now? So mostly now, I actually play the uh, Warhammer RPGs, the uh, old one. It's called Dark Heresy, and uh, you play as a group of acolytes assisting Inquisitor in rooting out cults and various and the evil entities that takes place in the far future. Um, it's a little bit like Call of Cthulhu uh, if you throw it way into the future. Sure. Mm-hmm. You have not played any of the Warhammer games at all. Gotcha. Yeah, it's always kind of fun to bring that up with other people who play RPGs because people have either played it and they love it or they no idea what it is. And I, I've yet to find anybody who doesn't fall into one of those two categories. And what about the game keeps your table playing that one? Honestly, it's just the fact that the uh, every time we sit down to play a game of it, the story is always different, which I suppose part of it is on me for making the story different. But um, because the universe is just so large that there's room to tell whatever kind of story you want, Um, because the universe is massive. So, for example, like, the, uh, you know, you're at free reign to build whatever kind of planet, whatever kind of stuff you want, and then still fit it within all the established lore, which is something I really like, because with a setting, you know, with, like, normal Dungeons & Dragons, like, say you want to play in one of the actual, you know, campaigns, um but maybe you don't want to follow the exact story. There's, you know, there's so many years of history there that just about everything has been mapped out and you're always going to have someone who's knows like the lore already. And it relates to like your game on a much closer level. Whereas with the, you know, dark heresy and Warhammer, there is that lore that exists, but you still have a ton of room to move around in it. Is something I like. Sure, there's just a lot of freedom there. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things that I I think I kind of struggle with um, running Star Wars games is that mm-hmm. there is a lot of stuff out there, and um, a lot of the people that I play with are also really big Star Wars nerds. So yeah, there's a there's a line between there is all there's a lot of room to make stuff up, but then there's also like seems like a lot of places where you also need to be kind of careful so you're not stepping on established stuff which can make it somewhat tricky um, exactly yeah 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 I, I get exactly what you mean i've run star wars once or twice and i made the decision to put it in the clone wars and it didn't go well because turns out you don't really have a lot of room to muck around with stuff there um yeah so that's definitely what i like about warhammer is you have a lot of room from the established lore to make your own stuff and when you guys started playing did you were you the one that started out as the dungeon master or did you kind of shuffle that role around and then kind of where how do you handle that now are you the main dungeon master yeah so in high school um i was not the main dungeon master it was a friend of mine and it got to 
junior year, he was basically the only one. And then he basically said he was tired of it. He wanted to play the game. And so he started shuffling around. Um, and it really wasn't until college that I kind of became the eternal dungeon master. Um, <laughs> where uh, it kind of just got to the point where like, I was running the game. And I realized I just liked running the game more than playing in the game. Um, and that was honestly probably the biggest piece of it. The other one being that uh, people kept coming back to the table. <laughs> if uh, people right. hadn't, that probably would have ended that, uh, that career pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, it helps when people want to play with you. So, Yeah. I It's gotten to the point where I have a reputation or something, people will bring other people to my table. And because we have a, uh, we have a club at my college um, for Dungeons and Dragons. So everyone's in the club. It basically just works as a place to meet new players and meet other DMs and, and to swap ideas and stuff. Sure. And, uh, but the end result is that you have people bringing other people to your table, usually to say like, Hey, you got like an extra slot, like, because, you know, word travels fast. Bad DMs don't usually last because everyone <laughs> knows what's up with a bad DM. <laughs> and so do you run um, games through the club that are, like, long campaigns? Or do you do more, like, one-shots and stuff? Um, my preferred game is basically a semester-long campaign. So usually around six months. And I usually start by collecting my players from the club and then kind of just run it how I want. Um, but yeah, I think six months is kind of my, kind of what I like to run. Sometimes I'll go longer, but if so, then I usually kind of partition it into pieces sure, rather than it being one big thing. Um, just because I think six months is a nice amount of time for people to get into their characters to really kind of to really kind of get into role playing, while also you know they they can see the story, they get into the story, and I feel like after that point, people start to get a little bored mm -hmm. with the story, with their characters, and just you know it may not even be a conscious thing that like you're bored, but it's you know, after six months of doing one thing, like you kind of, you start aching for something else. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I definitely feel that with most of the characters after a couple of sessions, it's like, oh, this is really fun. And then it's like, oh, but this other thing would be really fun too. But like, I don't want to yeah. kill my character or the campaign hasn't gotten very far or whatever. And then you kind of have that inevitable the campaign just fizzles out because everybody either gets bored or busy. So setting a timeline on it exactly. to say, we're going to do this little arc quick, kind of a, a burst, get in, get out, have fun with it, and then be able to roll up something new. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Do you typically plan out like this, like a story arc for it? Or are you just kind of, yes. So, cause like I said, um, because this one I play most is Dark Heresy. And so for that, like I said, there's a lot of room to move around outside of the established lore. However, if I want to move around outside of the established lore, that means I need to, you know, build what I want. Um, 
And so most often that takes the, that basically means I need to design one or two planets. I need to design basically what the acolytes are going to run into um, because it's, it's an investigative game. So what I generally do is I start by determining like basically the enemy's motivations. I have a notebook that I basically write it all down in and essentially before I even start the campaign, I try to have, I try to have at least the entire location mapped out. So we've got the planet, the factions on it, the bad guys, some neutral players and etc. I try and get all that mapped out. I go through the cult basically start by kind of doing like a little, uh, you know, org chart. So I got the leader of the cult. I got his lieutenants. Think like one of the uh, charts from like Shadow of War. Yeah, that's exactly what I was picturing, yeah. actually. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, I write at the top their motivations, what they're trying to do. And then I kind of do that thing for each of the uh, each of the major players in the cult. You know, what they want, why they want it, any kind of special stuff about them. And I set up a couple of schemes that they're like, embroiled in what they might do if stuff happens because my general idea is that the players are just getting dropped into this world and i'm gonna let them do whatever i've got if i have the entire place mapped out then they can just go and do whatever they can't you know there's no breaking the game by going someplace else because i've got it all mapped out um and then i figure whatever they do i have enough information for the cult that I can feasibly just react as they would. Like there's a, uh, there's a back and forth, if that makes sense. Right. And so when you say that you have stuff mapped out, it's more of, uh, in broad strokes, right? It's not like, okay, when this happens, I'm going to have them do this. It's more like, here's the main things that they're trying to do. And then as soon as the players come in and throw a wrench in that, then you just, okay, well, they were trying to do this and now maybe they can't, so they're going to try and do it a slightly different way that, you know, is still feasible to them or whatever, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. In terms of planning out the future, it's broad strokes. Um, in terms of plotting out, like, all the specific stuff, it's specific. Like, I normally try and have numbers of the exact number of cultists the cult have. I try and, you know, keep exact numbers on, like, basically all the various stuff that I can set them into, but you're exactly totally on point when it comes to what is happening next. It's, it's broad strokes. It's, they could do this. Maybe they'll do that because it all depends on what the players do. Right. And those broad strokes give you enough information that when the players push on it, then you can use that information and those broad strokes to kind of improv the fine detail or the, kind of their next steps yeah 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 in session i can improv and then i still do weekly prep time um mostly because my job lets me i work in parking enforcement so my shifts are basically five to six hours of me sitting in a parking lot with nothing to do <laughs> so that's the perfect reading, time exactly between reading and session prep that fills my time so it, which is honestly part of the reason I'm allowed to fill stuff out to such a like kind of ridiculous extent because 
I just simply have the time to do it. Sure. And what do you do in that weekly prep? What kind of things are you getting ready? So for the most part during weekly prep, the first thing I usually do is kind of look at the overarching kind of plot and just kind of make sure that it looks like everything is still in order in terms of information, in terms of the order of things, and just kind of give it a once-over, take a look at it, make sure all that's still flowing correctly. Um, I look at the characters, you know, the players' characters, make sure that they have opportunities to role-play and kind of what the next thing they're doing. Because usually my players, because at this point I've been playing with them for years, so they I know them pretty well, and they, they're they a little obvious about what they like to do at this point. Um, so I can usually kind of guess where they're going. So I want to try and make sure that they have opportunities to role-play in that, and they have opportunities to do what they'd like. And then... The majority of my prep after that is basically just planning out combat encounters, planning out the fine details after the broad strokes have been established. So really it's just filling in the blanks out of the, uh, you know, out of the broad strokes and whatever improv happens. Right. So you're basically whatever they did in the last session, you're taking that information and then getting the encounters and stuff ready for the upcoming session. Exactly mostly just detail work yeah and getting stats and stuff for monsters or for enemies and stuff can be can sometimes be tedious depending on the system but like it's nice to have that stuff ready to go so you're not scrambling in the moment exactly yeah although to be honest most of the time monsters i don't know i uh i run them in a way that probably would be considered a little controversial but i i play around with their stats in the middle of combat and kind of just try and keep the uh action going so you know i'm the mob the i don't know random gangster might supposed to only have 10 hp but you know if in the fight it's a little more dramatic if he's got 20 and he's still up to you know be a thorn of the party side like it's you know I'll, I'll run with that. I figure at the end of the day, it's about telling a story, so. Right. The actual stats don't matter maybe as much. Um, yeah. You probably would get, to, you know, that is kind of controversial depending on probably what side of the gaming community you're on. You know, if uh -huh. you fall more onto, like, the narrative side of things, um, most people probably wouldn't care. If you get once you get into the crunchier side of things, then some people might get really upset about that. Yeah, the core piece is that I don't tell my players. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the uh, players don't know, so don't tell your players about this episode. Then, <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's really funny. I think it was last week I talked about how I did not have stats for a certain thing for certain uh -huh. goblins or whatever and then my players were trying to calculate their um their stats or their hit points even though i didn't actually have stats for them so that, it's it's funny what players do yeah <laughs> the nice part about dark heresy is that your stats you know your weapon attacks and all um 
you have a characteristic for each of those, like Call of Cthulhu, so you're rolling against yourself to hit. Um, so there's very little for them to guess about the enemy stat block, considering our roll behind the screen. So makes that job easy. So, so since I'm not familiar, and I don't know how many of my listeners are familiar with the game, could you just kind of explain the resolution system? When it comes to Dark Heresy, um, we start with D&D. So D&D, you have you know, your core six, you got strength, constitution, etc., and each one has a modifier that you then roll the D20 and add your modifier, and maybe you beat the DC, maybe you don't. The DC is set by the Dungeon Master, right? Yep. Dark Heresy, however, you have, I think it's eight characteristics, and they're... Weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, agility, um, perception, fellowship, and willpower. Yeah, I think I got all of them. On the f- <laughs> all of them on the first try. All right. Um, how those work is then you have a list of skills, which you can either you have trained either in a basic way, plus ten or plus twenty. Any time you want to roll a skill check, uh, it falls under one of those skills that you have. So every skill in the game is linked to one of those characteristics. So say, you know, you have a 40 in ballistic skill and you want to, you know, shoot your pistol at an enemy, you would attempt to roll under 40 with bonuses depending on range, depending on all the other stuff. Because it's, it's a little neat, but it's a, uh, you know, the game is obviously an RPG for a wargaming game. So... Essentially, all your modifiers are locked in place. You look at your range, you look at the other conditions, and you apply the appropriate modifiers, and that's your rule. But at the end of the day, I, the DM, outside of setting the combat encounter and designing the area you're fighting in, I have little no control over your modifiers. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And honestly... From my perspective, I actually like systems that take some of that control away because a lot of times it's it can get finicky to be like, well, it could it could be this difficult or it could be a little bit higher or like I don't always care to try to come up with that stuff on the fly. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the things I really love because for one thing, it shuts down a lot of party disputes because I think 99% of the disputes in D&D come from Disputes about the rules, disputes about modifiers and stuff like that. I mean, the other 1% is the stuff you see on, you know, RPG horror stories, but <laughs> that 99%, um, having played both Dungeon Dragons and Dark Heresy, along with Call of Cthulhu and a handful of others, we have so fewer arguments in Dark Heresy because there's no... There's, there's little to no wiggle room on the point of the DM or the player's because you just look at the you look at the board, you look at where you are, and those are your modifiers. That's that's it. There's no, uh, yeah. There's nothing to determine there. There's just facts. And and I think the order of operations maybe would help speed things up too. Because and you're still, you know, if you're adding up all of the conditions of the roll, it's kind of like adding your bonuses and stuff to like a D and D roll. Except you're doing it all ahead of time, right? So you're like, okay, I had 40 in my skill plus 10 for something else, so I have to roll under 50. And then you just roll the dice, and if if it's 
if it's less, you're good versus yeah. in D&D &D where it's like, okay, I rolled this, but okay, now it's this after my modifiers. Yep. And then, you know, there's that kind of back and forth sometimes with, oh, like, absolutely. What, what was the final roll or like, <laughs> or, or, you know, I rolled a 20 like, was that a natural 20 or a, a 20 after modifiers or, you know, there's, there's some confusion yeah. that can yep. slow things down a little bit. So hundred percent. You're still doing kind of the same operations. You're just doing all of the bonuses first, and then the roll is immediately apparent if it's a success yeah. or a failure. The other thing I like is that, um, and I'll go ahead and give a little anecdote. I have two players who are what I consider casual players. They are one of them is just there for the action. They just like killing things, and the other one um, is is just new to the game overall. But uh, both of them picked up Dark Heresy really easily because they uh, basically what I do is I print out just the list of combat modifiers so that everyone can just look at it and see all right here are my modifiers um and they love it they picked it up great and then we get to Dungeons and Dragons and they can't do it they're falling over themselves because they're looking at the modifiers for their stats they're looking at if they have proficiency or not and they both just get lost <laughs> And honestly, I was just, I, I thought it was really interesting because it was basically the exact point you were just saying where somehow that like predetermining of modifiers and stats was easier for them to get than the like system of D&D &D, where you've got all this stuff that you add on after the fact and you got, you know, plus one here and plus three there and plus two there and they just couldn't get it. I think also the fact that the players know what they have to roll makes it easier. Yeah. I know in D and D, and it depends on it depends on what you're doing because sometimes like the rules will say, oh, if you like, what is it, breaking out of a net or whatever, it's like a strength check of ten. Um, yeah. But then other times the DM just like picks a number in their head and doesn't tell anybody, and then so then you have that like, do I hit or? do I, does it work? Or, you know, you kind of wait on that end. And I've seen like with ICRPG and stuff, uh, the author says, just tell them what the difficulty is up front so that they're not, because it really doesn't matter if they know the difficulty or not, right? I mean, yeah. if their characters are actually in the world, they'll probably have kind of a gut feeling for how difficult something should be. You know, whether yeah. it's hitting an enemy based on how much armor they have or how difficult it would be to climb something like they probably have an idea and the actual number doesn't really matter that much from a metagaming perspective at least so just yeah i think it's, it's a neat system because it takes a lot of that headache out uh yeah and just simplifies it a little bit even though a lot of it is the same it's the same operations it's just kind of handled a little bit nicer that is one of the things that i like about the powered by the apocalypse and the forged in the dark stuff is that Oh. I, the dungeon master, do not have to to set <laughs> difficulties. I just let the dice be mean to the players. Yep, that is one of the nice things because it means I can be mean to the players and how I design combat encounters, and then as soon as it touches the board, it is out of my control. The dice do as they will. Because um, that's the thing. Dungeon Dragons, I roll behind the screen because I like to play with the stuff. Um for Dark Heresy, more often than not, I roll out where everyone can see because Dark Heresy, it's 
very much um and honestly most of the games i play i like to play as the dice rolls messing with pieces here and there um but like dark heresy it's easy because uh if the dice are being mean to them it's not my fault right and, and i i guess i agree whenever i've run D or something where you i could roll behind the screen i do like to have things just out in the open because i don't want people to be like did they actually roll that lower did you actually get a critical hit on me you know yeah you just don't have to have that i don't know that conversation i guess um and so so enemies and stuff kind of work the same way as players then right whenever they're doing something like attacking a player or yep, something they exactly. roll under their skill as well yep they roll under their skills same set of modifiers same set of tables for the most part enemies to run exactly the same as players same way for skill checks same way for basically everything which means their stat blocks can sometimes be a little obtuse although then again it all depends on what you're having your bad guys do because like i would never have a uh, an enemy roll for like i think um like uh computing or something like that like figure if they're if the players can see them off screen doing something you know they're they're doing it for story purposes. They're gonna pass the check. I'm not gonna right. have them fail just for the purpose of rolling it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. But there's there's a handful of skills that are useful like perception and such. But you know it's not a uh, it can be a little obtuse. For the most part, it's only if they're doing something against the players that yeah, they exactly. could potentially fail at. Everything else is pretty much within their realm of they'll get to it eventually as the story demands exactly basically yeah nine times out of ten i don't see a reason to just you know have them roll the skill check if it you know if story-wise i need them to show off a thing they're doing do you guys play in person or virtually so i have a couple different my friday game is the dark heresy one um and that one is in person because it's with people from my college. Um, and then I have one on Monday nights that is online because it's with people who I went to high school and uh, middle school with. Um, and we just don't live in the same town anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, And so for your in-person game... Um, oh. do you do a lot of like miniatures and maps and stuff, or is it more theater of the mind? Yeah. So we do a lot of miniatures mostly because, um, in my spare time, I play Warhammer, um, the war game. So all of the stuff, all, all the miniatures on the board and everything, I own all the miniatures. So we use the miniatures, um, which, honestly, I think my players really like because normally at the start of the campaign, after I get their characters, I usually get a box of new minis and paint them up how they kind of wanted their characters represented. Sure. So, they that's, like it. That's a fun um, little treat for the players then. <laughs> yeah, because the best part is, even after the campaign is over... Um, it's a box of minis I use in my games, so 
Right, it's kind of a win-win for you because you were probably going to get the minis anyway, so it's an excuse to exactly. get some new some new models, and then the players are excited to play with these new painted minis, and then yeah, yeah and then you'll just have this in for future games. You just have a, a stockpile of potential enemies or characters to play with. Yep. Yeah, and it's honestly really fun because my friends and I, who also play Warhammer, a mix of whom also participate in the Dark Heresy games, um, we've built custom stats for the war game for the past characters and past enemies. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun to pull them back out every once in a while. Kind of a kind of a growing library and with stat blocks and everything. Yep. Yeah. Well, that makes prepping and stuff easier too, then, because you can just pull those back out and. Yep. Yeah. Do you guys use any do do terrain or anything? Terrain is usually a little bit more difficult, um, but mostly I draw the terrain on just because they uh, they use a lot of explosives. <laughs> um, so terrain doesn't usually stay terrain for very long. Usually two or three turns into combat, it's reduced to fiery debris. <laughs> um, <laughs> so do you more have than like happy a, to purchase miniatures? But uh, do you have yeah. um, like a, a whiteboard or like a game mat or something that you use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, actually have two because one is my roommate's, one is mine. Um, he has one of those. Uh, game mats that uh you can draw on with the uh wet erase markers which both of us use since we share the same table and the same dice and all that um and then i have a set of dungeon tiles that like are they're all whiteboardable but they clip together so you can basically build as you go that one's really neat because i can basically mark out a dungeon ahead of time and then, as they explore it, I can add the tiles back onto the map. And where did you get those at? So, I think my roommate got his at just a normal the game store. And I got mine at what, honestly, I consider to be the greatest uh, game store I've been to. Um, called Great Escape Games in Sacramento. You know what? That, that's my plug. There's my plug. Um, they're <laughs> awesome. But... Uh, yeah, it was, because that's the thing, it was like six years ago that I got it, um, but, and I can probably run and even check the name if that's something we'd want, but um, yeah, I got them like six years ago, and they were just sitting there with the uh, stack of other game stuff, and I looked at them and went, wow, this looks neat. Yeah, if you had a link to either their their website or like the the actual product itself i'd love to include that for the listeners yeah 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 for I, uh, for both the dungeon tiles and the game mats if you yeah yeah i can grab that after not a problem yeah it doesn't it doesn't have to be now cuz i i'll have to go through and edit and get mm. all my links and stuff up but yeah that'd be awesome cuz i it's there's there's so many products out there that you can get and a lot of times aren't even that expensive that can really help. But a lot of times it's just knowing if uh, that they exist and where to find them. 
Yeah, where to find them is definitely uh, more of an issue because all the stuff I buy, I've just bought at my local neighborhood game store usually or online if they don't have it. Um, so It's good to support the local game stores because I'm sure they have it hard enough as it is. Yeah, well, kind of funny because I live in Reno, but my preferred game store is the one in Sacramento, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is where I grew up. But um, just because, like I said, 10 out of 10 stars, I'd give them my ultimate recommendation, um, you know, for all that's worth. <laughs> um, do you have any tips for painting miniatures? So for painting miniatures, um, now something I want to establish ahead of time is that, um, you know, you can see there are those really, really nice painted armies of Warhammer figures where, you know, they got like 30 or 40 models and each one is like a fun little scenic base and they've got, you know, all all kinds of delightful detail. The armies I paint, um, our models have like 200 to like 300 models because I just play horde armies and, uh, they do not look very nice. Um, so my tips are mostly ways to mitigate having painted your models poorly. Um, for one thing, you can't ever have too much blood on a model. <laughs> Just lather that stuff on. Um, there's uh, you know shading. Shading is nice. Just make sure you don't use too much. Otherwise, they end up looking like a shadowy version of themselves. Um, oh, don't use, make sure you use the right shading on skin tones. If you use like normal, like, uh, the GW one is called, uh, null oil. Don't use null oil on faces. They have special like flesh shading. Let's see. Yeah. Those are typically a little bit more like a dark red, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Um, I can tell you the results of using, Normal shading on flesh does not look good. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I made that mistake on uh, one of my Star Wars minis. And, like, their clothes and stuff come out looking okay, but then their skin just looks like they rolled in the mud. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, let's see. Um, if you're looking at, like, painting nice miniatures, um, detail is always nice, but um, I think the best way to get things looking nicely detailed without a ton of work is just to kind of accent small places with different colors Mm -hmm. um, that are like similar. Like if you have a light and dark gold, you can kind of alternate various parts and it ends up giving it a really nice detail without you having to do too much work. Sure. Um, but yeah, most of my most of my advice is about batch painting, which I'd recommend breaking up if you're painting a lot of miniatures. Break it up every once in a while with either like a special model or like a vehicle or like something something that is not like the others. Sure. Break the cycle. Don't be too monotonous exactly. while you're going. Yeah. Because um, I... uh, yeah, because then you don't you know at a certain point if you're just painting the same thing over and over you start to lose your focus and you start to not care so much. And that's when you get sloppy and that's when you make mistakes. 
I know I haven't really talked to anybody about painting minis, but I just ordered minis yesterday that should be here tomorrow. Right. So I'm, ex I'm excited to paint them. <laughs> so, well, um, if you end up doing a uh, painting thing, I'd be happy to jump on and because I I've been painting for a while. I just haven't had a chance to paint anything that looks super nice. My stuff looks okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you saw on the Discord I posted the mini set that I got. I've got the Rune Wars core uh, set and then their Elves expansion uh, because uh -huh. it's a war game but it's discontinued yeah. because it's not popular and it's super <laughs> cheap. I got I got 70 minis for $50 so like 70 cents a piece. I mean and that's yeah. not including all of the like game booklets and game components that we'll have in it so um but yeah, i just no, i just i just wanted some cheap minis that i didn't like super care about so i can practice <laughs> uh -huh. which is exactly what i'd recommend and um looking at those guys i'd recommend starting with like that big giant looking guy with like four arms because stone is really easy to paint uh yeah um, the rune golem yeah 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 Stone, fabric, and metal are like the three easiest things. Um, especially if they don't have a lot of detail on them. And it looks like that guy's detail might be carved into his chest. So you are real lucky there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I'd say start with him. He should be... You, you can work that one out. Well, cool. I have I have some direction now, so that's perfect. Um, I I think I am probably going to do a live stream when I actually get around to painting him. So, uh, for anybody listening, look out for live streams of painting, and we can get some more more tips and conversations in. Oh yeah. Um, going back to your two games you have, or at least the two that you mentioned, you had a in person game. And then you also mentioned you had a virtual game. Um, yep. What tools do you use for facilitating your online play? So for online play, because I've looked at looked at a lot of stuff, and I'll be honest, I uh, I usually end up defaulting back to Roll Twenty, just because the other stuff, like I've looked at Foundry and you know, a handful of others, and some of them like Foundry just look really cool, but are obtuse to use for somebody who's new and doesn't exactly have the time to sit and watch a bunch of video tutorials. Um, mainly because I can't use my phone at my job, so, <laughs> which is why I'm usually doing session prep and reading. Um, but I use Rule 20 and I paid for that stupid um, what is it? The Rule 20 Plus or whatever just so I could have dynamic lighting. And I will grudgingly admit that that is very useful um as much as i detest paying monthly for something that i use to run a game um it actually makes running it virtually a lot easier and what system are you running online are you doing the warhammer still or are you doing D? &D? no that one is D, D. um mostly because that one so that's the thing every year at college i've been running you know i usually run two games a semester and then when i go home for the summer i would then run a in-person game for my friends 
back home. Uh, that would usually just last, you know, basically two, maybe three months over the summer. Um, so now it's at the point where none of us can actually go home for the summer. So I'm running a game that is basically kind of the natural culmination of the last three or four summers worth of games, plus one shots now and then. Um, so it is D and D, but it's so far, it's the longest game that I've actually run. We finished the prologue yesterday, um, last night actually. And we, uh, We've been playing since January, so that one is a uh, that one's interesting because it's it's a bunch of stuff that I don't normally do. Um, in that the world wasn't fully written out when I started. The uh, plot is different from what it normally is. Um, just that kind of stuff. But it's yeah that that one is D and D. When you're when you're playing these games, either for D and D or um, the Dark Heresy game, how often do you allow your players to level up? So that varies from game to game. Um, when it comes to Dark Heresy, so how Dark Heresy works is there is no level up. Um, your character just has an amount of experience points that you spend on specific skills, abilities, so there are there are tiers. Uh, basically, which are dependent on the amount of max experience points you have. So, I think the base game comes with 12. Uh, the first one is from 0 to 500 XP. Second one is from 501 to 1000. And so they literally buy specific skills, traits, abilities that are available in each tree. Um, and that one kind of fluctuates, but I usually try and give out either 100 or 200 XP a session. Because um, it means that they hit the mid-tier relatively quickly. And for Dungeons & Dragons, when I play it normally, um, I think the really fun place to be at is level 5 to like level 15. So I normally kind of power level them up from level 1 to 5. And then slow down and stretch it out a little bit more. But it's usually a pretty rapid fire process for leveling up. Um, and normally it's kind of a mix of milestone and also experience. I kind of look at the experience and it kind of matches the, uh, you know, kind of where they're supposed to be in terms of levels. Then I'll give them a level. Or if it looks like they just did something really important, I'll give them a level. Sure. That, but, so the, the Dark Heresy sounds very similar to how the Fantasy Flight Star Wars handles it, where you just get XP for doing the session, and then, like you said, there's not really levels, it's just you buy upgrades, basically, or talents, or skills, or whatever. And yep. I guess the thing that I like about that is it's less of the... Okay, we leveled up and I got a ton of stuff now that I have to like either pick spells mm -hmm. or learn abilities or whatever and more gets down to the like, oh, well, I have like 15 points, so I'm going to buy this talent and maybe train a skill. And then like every session, you just you always have like just a little bit more every session, but it's not like you get a ton dropped yeah. on you ever at one point. Like you could save it and buy a bunch at once, but like I think most people would rather have that like 
get a uh-huh. little incremental thing every time. Yeah, I'd agree. It definitely makes my players happy to uh, get that little dose of XP every session. Because then they're always planning on like, oh, I can take this, I could put grab this. It's not a... Uh, I feel like leveling up, you get like a nice... You know, in D&D, you get a nice little like kind of 10 second buzz of joy. You pick your stuff and they're like, all right, where's the next one? Like, yeah, where's my next level? Give it to me. Yeah. And and then you might play for like four or five sessions, you know, which could be a month or two, depending on how frequently you meet before you level up again. Yeah. And that's if your DM is keeping you at a, you know, kind of relative pace. I mean, there's. I've been in games where we got a level like every two to three months of real time and you know, the game was fun, but like I wanted to level up more. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that XP, people just generally seem to like that more. I was just going to say on the note of Fantasy Flight, I'm not surprised because um, they actually produced the second edition of Dark Heresy. So, I'm not surprised it sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that they had they had made that one. I'm I'm familiar with a lot of their products, but I I really have only followed their um, the Star Wars RPG, um, not any of their other ones. So yeah, well, I mean they produced it in 2008 and then lost the license, so I'm not super surprised um, that people usually aren't aware of it. Um, it is not a new new game. Yeah, and their RPG studios have been kind of in flux because they've been shuffling people around in studios and stuff, so it's been kind of weird lately. Yeah. I was going to say for me, if I did run another D&D game, I would probably um, set kind of a... Kind of like you were doing with like a time limit of like, we're going to play for six months and then we're going to be done. Um, and I would probably try and level up the players either every session or every other session just to kind of keep the momentum going. Um, I know that that's probably like extremely fast for leveling up, but for me, my groups tend to not meet very frequently. So, um, and any additional help to to keep people interested is good. Yeah. I think think if you don't meet frequently, then you doubly need to make sure that they're leveling at a good pace, just because that that leveling satisfaction just kind of pops up, and that's uh, and then then it's gone, and you're you're waiting for the next one, and uh, yeah. You did mention that you had a game that you were maybe working on. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure, for sure. Um. So, the uh, game, uh, the name, the working title we have for it is a uh, Crimson Kingdom, and it's inspired at least by um, our experiences playing Call of Cthulhu and reading a couple of uh, different sources. One of them, just in case any like listeners recognize it, is the uh, Lord Baltimore uh, comic book series by. Uh, Oh god, I've completely blanked on his name, but he's he's the same guy draws Hellboy. Um, oh, that's right, Mac, yeah, Mike Magnolia. Um, but it was kind of an inspiration of those, and it was really us looking at Call of Cthulhu, and we realized, you know, we we kind of like the feel of the game. We like the 
idea of like these monsters kind of existing here, but we didn't like the game. Um, we thought combat was kind of obtuse. We thought the leveling system was not enjoyable for players because friend doesn't know how Call of Cthulhu's session-to-session leveling works. At the end of each session, you basically make a skill check for every skill that you rolled successfully during the session. And if you pass, you get to increase it by, I think, like a point or something in a D100 system. So there's not a lot of payoff. Like we were talking about, there's not a lot of payoff for that, you know, uh, what's the word, for that level up. There's no feeling of, woohoo, we, we got stronger. Of Cthulhu's a little bit more like, woohoo, we didn't die horribly. <laughs> um, so our game system, essentially, we looked at what we liked in games we played across, you know, Star Wars and Dark Heresy and D&D, and we figured, all right, let's, uh, let's throw some things together. So essentially the system is, mechanically at least, you pick one of five classes. Each one has a skill tree. And it's a little bit like Dark Heresy, where you have experience that you spend on skills and abilities from your trees. The one thing we added is that there's a choice of general trees. So you have access to your classes tree, and you have access to eight other trees that represent kind of just general combat skills, luck, um, you know, magic, stuff like that. And the idea was... Because we're looking at it and realized we basically just wanted to build a system where you could build mechanically whatever kind of character you wanted with the intention of it being that, you know, normally people talk about in Dungeons and Dragons, you can flavor your abilities however you want, right? Well, the idea was here, you pick the ability and you get to flavor it however you want. Because we realized the big thing with D&D is a lot of time. The ability comes with flavor text. It comes with a description of what you are doing. So we kind of just stayed strict to a mechanical perspective of here's your ability. Here's the mechanical aspect of what this does. You get to choose how you want to implement this as something your character is doing. Um, which was something that we are really happy with. We're a, uh, we just finished the player's handbook and we're working on the DM's guide. But um, honestly, it's something that we're just really happy with is how we've set up the system to handle that. Um, our idea was to provide basically maximum, basically all the rules are as straight as they come, almost like Dark Heresy where your modifiers are set, all that stuff is set. Um but the uh, the flavor is the flavor isn't there basically. The flavor is there for you to put in um, because we wanted people to design their own character. So is um, the um, is it pretty like uh, I want to say system agnostic, but that's not the right word. Like theme agnostic. So like it it's like just a generic system that you could run anything in. So that, yeah, that's the delightful part. In the uh, the player's handbook, we kept as theme agnostic as possible. We have a little blurb at the front about our preferred setting. And then the DM's guide goes on to explain, basically, we have a setting you can use if you want, but this should feasibly work for any setting. It doesn't need to be 
our setting. The goal was to make a system that anyone can use to make whatever kind of character or game that they want, and that was kind of where we ended up with it. Um, so our setting we like, but if you want to do something else, it should fully be able to support that. And what are your plans for the game once you get uh, get it finished? So the plan once we get the DM's guide finished, um, and we're also writing up one other adventure, we want to put it on Kickstarter. Um, and if it gets supports that if it gets support, that'd be great. Um, if people like it, that'd be awesome. We have a couple of other ideas for kind of expansion books. Not well, expansion might be the wrong word. Basically, it's we want to provide a couple of books to help make that idea of making it work for any game possible. So it's books that would kind of expand. Oh, if you want to run a bit more of a sci-fi game, here's some resources for that. If you want to run a little bit more of a medieval game, here's some resources for that. And each of those would be a mix of content for our setting and also general rules to, to run that content in, you know, any setting. So, and we've started looking at what those books would entail and kind of the different pieces of mechanical stuff that we'd want to put in there. But, uh, yeah, ideally, if, if people liked it and people wanted to play it, we would happily put more stuff out for it. And do you guys have a timeline as to when you think a Kickstarter would happen or not yet? Ideally, uh, it would be December of this year. That would because we need art and we need to finish that second book. Because uh, turns out writing takes a while. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have like a website or a social media page or anything where um, people can follow for updates? At this point, we do not. But um, who knows? Maybe I'll be back on at some point to discuss that more <laughs> we really yeah. hadn't uh thought about any of that yet we wanted to get our content all finished up before we even you know the the idea would be we'd pro we'd be putting up a kickstarter with basically a finished product of hey look at our product come buy it you know i think well, that that that's actually not a bad idea because you don't want to get sucked into the trap of like okay we're gonna finish this thing and then and then you never have a finished product you know, exactly. and then yeah. then you have issues too, um, and yeah, as you get closer to uh, a potential release, or maybe when the the product is done and you've got like a website or some social media or something up, um, let me know and I can have you back on for another uh, chat, and and we can maybe go more in depth on the game itself in, in a conversation. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Hell, maybe I'll be able to run a one-shot on the uh, server. Oh, there that actually would be a, a pretty good idea, especially if you wanted to get some more Dungeon Masters in and to have like a playtest session. Yeah, that could work, because mechanically the game is finished. We just need to finish writing the uh, DM's guide, basically. So... And I know there are people on the server that are always looking to get into games. They just need somebody to run them. So, um, yeah, if you threw something in the game chat on the server, I'm sure you would have at least a couple people 
that would try to make time to to get in on a session. I I would be interested in getting in on a session and seeing how it plays. Awesome, awesome. Glad to hear that. Then yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll take a look at doing that. I gotta <laughs> currently applying to law school, so the next several weeks are a little uh, <laughs> little. Um, trying to figure out how to phrase it best um a little i'm exhausted and have no time but uh we'll see after that (laughs) yeah uh yeah i get i as a parent i understand the um being exhausted and having no time side of things so i can't imagine law school (laughs) yeah well the good news is i'm just applying for now i don't i'm not in yet (laughs) awesome well I really appreciate our conversation today, Dan. I've had a lot of fun talking to you, and I am really excited to hopefully see a game or two pop up on the Discord server and hopefully get in on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it has been awesome to be on. I've been waiting. Um, waiting might be the wrong word, but like I've been excited to uh, come on and talk for a while. I'm just a little shy. So, yeah, no, it's been great to be on. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.